Well, good morning, everyone. I asked Pastor Marcus to flip our order of praise so that we sing um, the response song first, in a sense. Sing one song in the beginning and close our time with singing of several songs. I did this, I asked him this because uh, we are studying John 19, 28 through 30, the death of our Lord. Um, he bows his head, gives up his spirit, and gives his life on behalf of our sins for the glory of the Father. And I was thinking through what applications can I make? What closing thoughts are appropriate for such a study? And I just you know, hit a wall. I couldn't think of any appropriate applications in light of such a tremendous study. And I thought to myself, it would just be appropriate for us to rise as a congregation, rise as a church, and just to sing to the Lord, sing praises to His name. Just respond to this great price that was paid on our behalf, uh, the forgiveness of our sins, the ransom that was paid, just by raising our voices and singing and praising God and worshiping Him together. So, uh, we began with one song, but uh, we will close with uh, our, our voices lifted up, singing to our Lord in response to His great uh, sacrifice. Well, we're cont- continuing on our study of the Gospel of John, and sad, sad to report to you, only seven more sermons to go. Seven more, and um, our study in this dear gospel comes to its conclusion. Now, before we get to um, our study, just want to say my only statement on the Da Vinci Code. You know, my only statement. Uh, I debated about you know emailing resources and writing on the pastor's corner and saying doing a whole sermon on it, but. You know, just my only statement, brief statement on, on the book and the movie, and the catchphrase of the advertisement is, Seek the Truth. And so, though it is a fictional account, uh, there is no disclaimer in the movie, especially that it is a fictional account. It's the premise of the movie is that there's a vast conspiracy, a worldwide deception has occurred, and the church is behind it. The greatest law in the history of the world is being protected and propagated by the church, and the truth is that Jesus did not die on the cross. Uh, I didn't read the book nor the movie, but this is from things that I read on the, on the web. He didn't die on the cross. Uh, he married Mary Magdalene. And uh, in fact, they had children and the progenitors which still survive to this day on, on earth. And, um, you know, what an insult to Christ. What an insult to the Bible. What a mockery to our faith. Um, my sensitivity to it is heightened by the fact that I'm, we're studying John 19. We're studying the beauty, the holy character of Christ, the courage of our Lord, His ultimate sacrifice onto the Father on our behalf. And so on one end, on one end I'm studying John, we're all studying John 19. And then, um, you know, I go, go, go to yahoo.com or... I, I drive by, you know, buildings with um, um, billboards, and it's all about this truth that our Lord was, and His disciples were liars, the Bible is not true, and that not only are we deceived, we are in a, in a conspiracy of, of disseminating this deception throughout the world. Well, the question is, how are we to respond and I read an article by Pastor John Piper in World Magazine several months ago. It was thought it was very appropriate and it 
helps us to think through how we're to respond to people that attack our faith, uh, make a mockery of what we hold dear. Uh, much of this is his writing. I'll, I'll, I'll quote and paraphrase as we go along. When Muhammad was portrayed in 12 cartoons in the Danish newspaper, the uproar among Muslims was intense and sometimes very violent. When they were mocked, when they were offended and insulted, they responded by burning flags, torching embassies, stoning at least one Christian church, making threats against those who uh, published these cartoons, making threats and carrying out their violent threats against um, uh, the Western world, against Christians as well. The cartoonists went into hiding for fear for their lives, like Salman Rushdie before them. All over a few cartoon drawings of the Prophet Muhammad. Piper said, there is a deep lesson in all of this. The work of Muhammad and the core of Islam is based on being honored. On the other hand, the work of Christ is based on being insulted. If Christ had not been insulted, if Christ had not experienced the fourfold shame of the cross, if He did not die on the shame of the cross on Calvary, there would be no salvation. This was His saving work, to be insulted and to die to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. The shame, the humiliation was prophesied in the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah. I mean, we've been studying this in Psalm 22. We'll look at it again in Psalm 69. What about Isaiah 53? He was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces and we esteemed Him not. Well, when it actually happened, it was much worse than what Psalm 22, 69, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, 10, all those prophecies, what they prophesied, the reality was much worse. Yet how did our Lord endure such torture, such shame and persecution? He is our example. He responded to all of this with patient endurance, submitting Himself to the Father. That was not true of Muhammad. He raised the sword. He would not be offended. He would not be insulted. He uh, slaughtered and murdered anyone who would dare go against him, but not the Lord. That is the most basic difference between Christ and Muhammad and between a Muslim and a follower of Christ. For Christ, enduring the mockery of the cross was the essence of His mission Therefore, for a true follower of Christ, enduring suffering patiently for the glory of Christ is the essence of our obedience. Enduring patiently suffering for righteousness, for the glory of Christ, is the essence of our obedience. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You are blessed. Our Lord experienced this, this kind of insult, insinuations, this kind of 
lies and deception propagated about him is nothing new. He experienced it directly against him while he was on the earth and during his ministry. John 8.41, he was called a bastard child. Matthew 11.19, he was called a drunkard. Matthew 26.65, he was called a blasphemer, a devil in Matthew 10.25. They called him a leader of Beelzebul, Lord of creatures crawling on the earth. That mockery continues to this day. And so, we see an example of how we are to respond. On the one hand, we grieve and mourn, not for Christ, not for us, but we grieve and mourn for them because they're buying into a lie and they're getting deeper into this deception which has, has blinded them, which has bound them from seeing Christ as He is and being saved. And in that way, we mourn and we grieve, not for us, not for Christ, not for the Bible, but for them. And on the other hand, we identify with Christ. We embrace the ridicule, the deception, the suffering. We rejoice in our afflictions. Christ did His work by being insulted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Christ called us to go to the cross. Therefore, we follow Christ to the cross. We do not pay evil for evil. We don't serve in volley insults and, and personal attacks. No, we pay back by living lives above reproach. By living out holiness. And by living out true Christian love. And at the same time, by being set apart. We set ourselves apart from all these, um, what Paul calls uh, silly myths, 1 Timothy 4.7. What Paul called uh, irrelevant myths, 2 Timothy 4.4. 4. We avoid every kind of evil, 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Whether it's the Gnostic Gospels that came about in the 1st and 3rd century, whether it's the Passover plot that came out 50 years ago, whether it's the Da Vinci Code that came out a few years ago, and the lies that they're devising now that will come out in years to come, for believers, these are myths. They're foolish old wives' tales. We have nothing to do with them. We set ourselves apart. We test everything, holding on to the good, avoiding every kind of evil. Our resolution, our resolve is this. Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, said this when he received the Nobel Peace Prize. The simple act of an ordinary courageous man is not to take part, not to support lies. Let the lie come into the world and even dominate the world, but not through me. I like that. Alright, the simple act of a courageous man is not to take part. Let these lies come and let they dominate the world, but let these lies never come from me. That is the resolve of the Christian. We have nothing to do with lies. Lies. God of this age rules this world. He's the father of lies. As for me and my household, we will live the truth. And proclaim the truth. Okay? So, um, our response, these truths, these, these uh, deceptions, lies, nothing new under the sun. It began in, in the Garden of Eden, serpent tempting uh, Eve, and it will continue until the 
Lord's return. Let us be steadfast, abounding in the work that God has called us to, knowing that the truth of the gospel is the only thing that will set people free from the bondage of such lies. It is an emotional topic for us, especially during this time, because we are now as a church studying the death of, death of Christ, death of our Lord. And it is a special day, special Lord's Day, because we're studying verses 28 through 30. And this is a record, John's eyewitness account of our Lord's death. Let's read that section of scripture together. John 19, 28 through 30. Just to kind of uh, set up the context for, for you, if, not, if you have not been with us. Um, starting in verse 16, he was delivered over to be crucified. He experienced the fourfold shame of crucifixion. He was exiled from God's city. He went out. He was forced out from Jerusalem. He was crucified outside the walls of the city. Not only that, he was forced to carry his own cross, the instrument of his own death. It was a public execution. There was no um, 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 protection for him in terms of his dignity by having a private execution. It was public before the world to see. And the title of Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was a title of mockery. Pilate didn't put it there as a sign of his faith in Christ. It was a title of mockery, insult, something that the bystanders used to hurl insults at Christ. While he was experiencing these, uh, these uh, um, sufferings, um, John's purpose in writing the gospel is not to highlight the suffering, pain, and torture of the cross. In fact, crucifixion is briefly referred to in verse 18, there they crucified him. The emphasis, the focus of John is not the torture of Christ. He doesn't want us to pity him. He doesn't want us to feel sorry for him. He doesn't want our hearts to be moved by the physical pain of the cross. What he wants us to focus on is the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. Throughout the Gospel of John, John said, Thus it is written, Thus it is fulfilled. And here on the cross, four prophecies are fulfilled by our Lord. Two before His death and two after His death. Two while He's alive on the cross and two after He has given up His Spirit. He highlights these four prophecies so that we might read and believe that these fulfilled prophecies would pierce our hearts and cause our, our eyes to be opened and see the glory of our sovereign King. That though He is imprisoned, on, impaled on a cross, He is in charge, He is the Master, He is the King, and He is in complete control. John wants us to see that. That is His authorial intent. So that we might lay aside our faith in our own works. Lay aside our faith in the lives of this world that we might believe in Jesus as the promised one, as the Christos, as the Messiah given by the Father. We studied the first one a few weeks ago how the robbers were, how the soldiers were gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross. And that is a direct, specific fulfillment of the prophecy made a thousand years before in Psalm 22. And then, last week, in between the fulfillment of prophecy, we saw the narrative 
the event of Christ honoring his mom by fulfilling his responsibility as the firstborn son. Now, we come to verses 28 through 30. 28 through 30. Now, I want to point out to you in these uh, three verses, in your Bibles there ought to be uh, two sentences in red. If you don't have that, you're a defective Bible. All right. Two sentences in red. Um, point out to you that our passage contains two of the same seven statements of our Lord on the cross. Two of the seven. Our Lord on the cross said seven things, made seven statements, spoke seven times. And the Gospel writers recorded these statements the Holy Spirit took special care that each of these utterances, these sacred utterances, would be faithfully recorded. And these seven sayings have been studied ever since they were uttered. For 2,000 years of church history, young believers, Bible students, pastors, Bible scholars, have spent countless hours studying these seven statements. Let me just recount to you the, the seven statements in their chronological order. The first thing our Lord said was in fact a prayer. Luke twenty three thirty four, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's not explicitly recorded in Scripture, but it's most likely that He said this statement, He prayed this prayer while He was being crucified. While the nails were being driven to His hands and driven into His feet, Audibly that the soldiers might hear, he interceded on their behalf. Father, forgive them, these very men, for they do not know what they are doing. And uh, Gospel of Luke and Gospel of Matthew as well record the centurion's response after our Lord's death. He said, surely this was the Son of God. He went away rejoicing and praising God. So here is our Lord's first prayer, first statement on the cross, and the Father answered it by forgiving these men for they were committing an unwitting sin, a sin of unbelief, a sin of ignorance. That's what Apostle Paul said, right? 1 Timothy 1.13, Father showed me mercy, God gave me grace, because I was sinning in ignorance, sinning without knowledge. It wasn't intentional, it wasn't a high-handed sin. Therefore the Father heard his prayer, answered, and they were forgiven. Second statement is made to a robber crucified next to him. That robber stretched forth his heart and cried out to the Lord, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. I am being crucified justly. I deserve this punishment. I deserve to be executed you are innocent. You are holy. Remember me. And our Lord's second statement was to him. A few hours before his death, today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. The third statement was studied last week, where our Lord in John 19, 26 and 27, turned to his mom and turned to John the Apostle and said to John, Behold your mother, Woman, behold your son. And then began the three hours of darkness. It was high noon. 
from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, Matthew 27 tells us there was darkness over all the land. It should be the high point of, of daylight, and yet complete darkness covered the land. It was around this time, we're not sure, the Bible is not clear, whether in the beginning of the three hours, in the middle, or towards the end. But sometime within the three hours, our Lord cried out His fourth statement, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness as a sign of, of God removing His presence from His Son and cutting off that father-son relationship where our Lord cries out, not Abba Father, not Father, but my God, my God, you have abandoned me. Why have you abandoned me? Quoting Psalm 22. And then in John 19.28, here is the fifth statement of Christ, I thirst. The sixth statement is also found in verse 30, it is finished. And the last statement is not recorded by John because Luke did a good job of it, recording our Lord's last statement, Luke 23.46, Into your hands I commit my spirit. So for today, we'll look at the fifth and sixth statement of our Lord on the cross. Both of them are single words, right? You know, in, in English, it's I thirst, two words. It is finished, it's three. But in the Greek, it's both one words. One word. Huh? After the three hours of darkness, during which the light of God's countenance had been withdrawn from the sin bearer, our blessed Savior endured the fierceness of the outpoured wrath of the Holy God, as the end neared, Christ uttered a final plea for physical relief. He cried out, I thirst. What a sight is this, the maker of heaven and earth with parched lips, the Lord of glory in need of a drink, crying out, I thirst. It is an evidence, it is proof of His full humanity that He was Though fully God, in His incarnation, He was fully and He is forever fully man. Full incarnation. He is the God-man. He's not just pretending to be man. He's not feigning weakness, feigning uh, uh, pain and feigning thirst. That's His reality. You know, like Superman acted like he was Clark Kent, but he was never really Clark Kent. Right? He never felt pain. He was impervious to pain, pervious to bullets. Clark Kent never existed. Not so with Christ. He wasn't acting like he was human. He wasn't acting weak. He was weak because in his incarnation, he laid aside his glory and took on the flesh of man, the humanity of mankind. He was fully human, Luke 2.52. He grew. He grew up. He increased in wisdom and in stature. In John 4.6, He was tired in body. In Matthew 4.2, He was hungry. He experienced hunger. He was so tired in Mark 4, during the storm, He slept. In John 11.35, He wept tears. Luke 10.21, He rejoiced. John 11.33, he groaned with pain. And here, 
He thirsted. He was thirsty. Now, what we need to understand though, um, he called out, I thirst, not mainly because he was thirsty, but mainly because he wanted to do the Father's will. He was fulfilling Scripture. He was submitting himself to the Father. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and there is uh, John's commentary, John's aside comment. Those are the words of John describing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He said this, not because just he was thirsty, in a moment of weakness he wanted some water. He said this to fulfill the Scriptures, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. He came to do God's will, and He perfectly performed it. Perfectly performed it. He makes his, no, his need known, not that it might be relieved, but that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Turn with me to, to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. It is quite marvelous. Our Lord has been experiencing incredible torture and pain for several days. And yet moments before His death, His mind is clear. He is alert. He is still focused on His responsibilities to God and to man. And He knows and He remembers that there is still yet one prophecy that is left to be fulfilled. The prophecy that is recorded in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is an important psalm that has great significance for the New Testament. There are several passages in this psalm which are applied in the New Testament to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah, and to His, and, and his times. Look at Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Stop right there. Now, that ought to uh, sound familiar. Right? Apostle John recorded that in John 2.17, the account of our Lord uh, kicking everybody out from the temple courts who were exchanging money, selling animals. And John said, I saw him and a zeal for the Father has consumed him. And this was a prophecy made in Psalm 69, verse 9. Fulfilled in Christ. Passion for God's glory, passion for the honor of the Father overwhelmed him and consumed him. The second part of verse 9 in Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Apostle Paul took up this theme in Romans 15.3 and he said, Christ did not please Himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Our Lord's zeal for the Father was such that everyone who hated the Father, who hated God, hated Christ. And He willingly received it. 
He did not live for his comfort. He did not live for his pleasure, for his self-centered needs. He lived such for the glory of the Father that he willingly, joyfully received and embraced the insults, the mockeries, the blasphemies that were directed towards the Father he himself received. One more. Psalm 69.4 More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. This prophecy is recorded as being fulfilled in John 15.25 But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled They hated me without a cause. There's no reason. There's no cause for their hatred of Christ. And yet, he was hated, vilified. Why? It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And in verse 21, here is the prophecy of the Messiah being fulfilled by Christ. A few moments before his death, John 16, 69, 21, they gave me poison for food. When I was perishing with hunger, they not only refused to give me food, but they mocked my sufferings by giving me bitter and poisonous herb for food. And when I was thirsty, for, their, for my thirst, they did not give me water but they gave me sour wine to drink. Sour wine. The word translated here is vinegar. Rendered in the ancient versions, sour wine or sour grapes. Proper signification here is vinegar, the usual meaning of the word. Now, this is not, there are two instances when the, when the soldiers gave the Lord something to drink. When he was crucified, early in his crucifixion in Matthew 27, 48, they lifted up uh, wine mixed with myrrh, a usual custom to deaden the pain, to stupefy the sufferer, to dull the pain. Our Lord refused that drink. He would not drink it, for he would receive the pain in all its fullness. But this is a subsequent giving of drink right before his death. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This was for a different purpose. It was to allay his thirst, satisfy his thirst, but it was sour wine. It was like vinegar. I I don't believe that our Lord drank again so much because He was thirsty, but because He came to do the Father's will. He came to fulfill all the prophecies about Him in the Old Testament. This was the last one that He had to perform. And so, obediently, He drank that sour wine. Verse 30, when Jesus had finished the sour wine, there's the proof, another evidence. As soon as he drank, he said, again, one word in the Greek, the Palestine. It is finished. 
It is finished. It was the briefest and yet the fullest of his seven cross utterances. Pastor J.C. Ryle said, For 1800 years, Christians have studied it as best they can, yet it is far from likely that we can completely understand and fathom the depths of the meaning of this statement. He continues, Eternity will be necessary to understand all that it contains. It is clear by this statement that it is not the last gasp of a worn out life. He was not, it was not a despairing cry. It was not a martyr crying out as, uh, in his helplessness. It was the declaration of the divine redeemer. Luke 23:46 indicates that he declared this. He shouted this out with a loud voice. He cried it out. It is finished. It is, I wholly believe, a triumphant cry. Triumphant cry that it is accomplished. All is done. I have fulfilled all my obligations. My work has been accomplished. To be more specific, what has been accomplished? There's so many things. But bottom line, three things that were accomplished. Three things that he is referring to. Fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment of prophecy. Ever since sin into the world in the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve, God made this promise prophecy. <coughs> between serpent and the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. You will injure him. You will cause him to suffer, but he will crush the head of Satan. Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for sin, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his land. That was what Christ came to do. John 4.34 My food is, is to do the will of him who sent me. John 17.4 I glorify you on earth, having accomplished, having finished, same word, having finished the work that you gave me to do. That's how, the, how our Lord glorified the Father. And when he said, it is finished, he was saying, I have done it. I have fulfilled prophecy. Second part is that his mission is accomplished. His mission is accomplished. He has fulfilled the purpose of his incarnation. Luke 19.10 The Son of Man came to seek and to provide salvation for the lost. Son of Man came to seek and to make salvation possible. No. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son and you shall call him Jesus for he will save his people from sins. I love 1 Timothy 1, 13-16. The Gospel of Christ declared through Paul's testimony. 
in the, in the, right in the middle of Paul's testimony, he inserts verse 15. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. It is finished. I did it. I saved sinners. I rescued God's people. I've, I've, I've redeemed them. Rescued them from the fire. It is not a possibility. I did all of this. Well, let's see what happens. Let's see if the people will respond. The verb tense is the perfect tense. It is done once and for all. The benefits continue. But the act is finished once for all to tell us die. I have done it. I have rescued God's flock. And so finally, he's declaring that the perfect sacrifice has been offered. Perfect sacrifice has been offered. Ransom has been paid. Atonement has been achieved. Christ's atoning work was finished. Redemption for sinners was complete. He was triumphant. Christ has fulfilled on behalf of sinners everything that the law required of us. We were helpless to obey. We were under a curse because we have violated the law. Yet Christ fulfilled the law in every way. And we have been credited with His righteousness. Full atonement has been made. God's justice was satisfied. His, his wrath, His unbridled wrath has been unleashed against Christ and He took it all. He drank the cup of God's wrath and drank it to the last drop so that believers in Christ, there will be no condemnation for us because He was punished and He died as our substitute. The ransom for sin was paid in full. The wages of sin were settled forever. Nothing else necessary. No other righteous deed, no other ceremony is needed for the benefits of Christ's death to be applied to us. We don't need to do anything. Any of our works, any righteousness to complete Christ's work, it is finished all that is necessary for us to receive the benefits of the cross is to believe in Him. To believe in the cross. Believe that it is finished. Believe that we are saved not by our own righteousness, not by our own wisdom, not by our own good works, but we are saved because we believe that He did it all. That He paid for it all. That He finished the work of salvation on the cross that our salvation is all by, by grace. Pastor MacArthur summarizes it in this way. All things have been done which the law of God required. All things established which prophecy predicted. All things brought to pass which the types foreshadowed. All things accomplished which the Father had given Jesus to do. 
all things performed which were needed for our redemption, nothing was left wanting, the costly ransom was given, the great conflict is over, sin's wages has, has been paid, divine justice is now satisfied because Christ finished the work on the cross. After saying this, verse 30, he bowed his head. And then, he gave up his spirit. Luke the doctor tells us that he declared, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, he breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. That's a miracle as well. You know, Stephen, when he was dying in Acts 7, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. His life was taken from him. No one took our Lord's life. He laid it down. John 10.18 He is the good shepherd. John 10.11 The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. No one took his life. He gave it up. He gave it up to the Father so that we might have eternal life. Oswald Chambers said, the death of Christ is the fulfillment in history of the very mind and intent of God. There is no place for seeing Jesus Christ as a martyr. His death was not something that happened to Him, something that could have been prevented. No, His death was the very reason that He came. Our Lord has done it. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled every prophecy concerning Himself. He was the perfect substitute, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was without sin. Therefore, a perfect substitute on our behalf. And He paid the ransom with the precious blood, with His life, and redeemed us from God's wrath, redeemed us from hell. Again, what ought to be our response? Let us have a simple response to this great gift of Jesus Christ. Let's worship Him. As a church, gather together on the Lord's Day. There's one day in our lives. Let's gather and make it our ambition. This day, this moment, this time, I will cherish the Lord. I'll give Him praise. I'll thank Him with my lips as an overflow of my heart filled with thanksgiving for this great salvation. Marcus, if you would come up. Praise team. Let us stand together and worship our King.